I hope you guys are doing well today. This is history today. Two services in one day. They stuck me with two services. So I am eternally grateful to those sly dogs who did this to me. The first service got the practice sermon, so this one should really be good. All right. So get ready because it's going to knock your socks off. You're going to leave here so in love with Jesus. It's going to be incredible. Now, I'm really, I'm really honored to be able to do this twice because it does give me another shot to get it right, and I'm excited to share the word with you. So we've been in this series called Intentional, and if you guys would walk back with me a little bit, what I want to try to do today is give you a nice take-home package that you can walk out of here with and know, okay, I know what the last three weeks of, of church have been about. We've been talking about the gospel for everyday living. Brian started off the series, and he talked about being intentional in our families, And his big idea was focusing on those things that really matter in life. He picked on soccer players a lot that day, if you guys remember. It was pretty awesome, if you ask me. But not not that I'm against soccer players. I like soccer players. I just can't play. So I don't play soccer. But he picked on, you know, the fact that we spend a lot of sideways energy on things that at the end of the day don't really matter. The odds of us or our kids growing up to be professional soccer players and you know, being able to buy, you know, their parents' nice houses and things like that are very, very slim. But the gospel always matters. And so Brian really challenged us to get into our families and make the gospel a prominent fixture of our family life. Matt came the week later and followed it up with the idea of being intentional in our church, not just doing church. We have the opportunity to be a part of something greater than ourselves. It's an incredible privilege. It's an incredible opportunity. And so Matt challenged us to not just come and do church, not just come and be consumers in our church, but to come and be intentional in our church, to serve, to build each other up. Ephesians 4.29, building each other up. An incredible opportunity for us as the body of Christ. Well, today I want to talk to you about being intentional in our world, being intentional outside these walls. As soon as you walk out the door today, you're in the mission field. I know it's cliche, and I know a lot of churches have it over their doors and things like that, but it's the truth. Just because it's used a lot doesn't mean it's not true. And as soon as you guys step foot outside there today, you're in the mission field. And so today we want to encourage you and challenge you, and I hope to give you groundwork that will spur you on to be the missionaries that we're all called to be, to go out and be an intentional in a lost and dying world. There have been four thoughts that we have said in every service during this series. And just to kind of get our minds set on the things that need to be set on this morning, I want to just walk through those with you. And just forgive me for reading these off. They're, they're quite lengthy and I couldn't memorize them. So if we believe that every person on this planet is born separated from God because of sin, but was created to have a relationship with him, if we believe that the gospel is truly radical and can change and transform lives and eternal destiny. If we believe that the reason God leaves us on the planet instead of immediately taking us where he is after we come into a relationship with him is to influence others with this life-changing message, then the huge question each of us needs to answer is, are we intentionally, deliberately, and purposefully involved in the ministry of the gospel? I think these statements are profound because if we truly believe these things, then we should act. I had a seminary professor who used to say this all the time, stated belief 
plus actual practice equals actual belief. What I say I believe means nothing unless I back it up with what I do. And if we truly believe that the gospel is the only hope for a lost and dying world, then guess what? We should be saying something. We like to use that phrase, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. I don't agree with that. Paul tells us in Romans, how can they hear unless someone tells them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is a challenge to us this morning. Now, I used up all my funny jokes and stories in the first message. The ones that didn't fly over, I cut out. So this message is not going to be very funny. You'll have to forgive me for that. But I believe that our, this is a huge challenge for us as the body of Christ to think about this, this idea of what are we supposed to be like outside of these walls and how do we intentionally share the gospel outside of these walls. And so I hope today that you're challenged by the word of God, first of all. And I hope today that maybe we can shift the paradigm in your lives to maybe give us a little bit clearer picture of this thing called missions. So open your Bibles to Isaiah 6. And as you're opening there, I want to kind of let the cat out of the bag today. I want to give you the big idea. And if you can write this down, if you're already in Isaiah, write this down. I'll read it twice for you. But this is kind of the, the premise. This is the idea I want you to walk away with today. Our understanding and idea of who God is will directly affect how intentional we are about sharing the hope of Christ in our world. Bottom line, that's what I want you to walk away with. Our understanding and idea of who God is will directly affect how intentional we are about sharing the hope of Christ in our world. So if you've got Isaiah 6, would you stand with me as we read this incredible passage of Scripture? We're starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is only mentioned one other time in Scripture in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Now look at what Isaiah's reaction to all this is, and I think this should be our all, all of our reactions to this. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. Let's pray. Father, may the word touch our hearts this morning. May we be moved to action because of who you are. May you draw us close to you, God. And may our understanding and picture of who you are be made clear today through your word. 
We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for this opportunity. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. You can have a seat. John Piper is a, is a pretty famous pastor, pretty well-known guy. A lot of guys follow just about everything he does. And he writes in a book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, about a time he preached Isaiah 6. And he left out any personal application on purpose. He was experimenting with his congregation. Isn't that great? Doesn't that make you feel good that you knowing that sometimes we experiment with you guys a little bit? We just want to see how you act, right? So John Piper has experimented with his congregation by leaving out any personal application. He was trying to answer this one question, and I'll read it for you. Would the passionate portrayal of the greatness of God in and of itself meet the needs of the people? It's a pretty profound question. Would a picture of God meet the needs of his people? Would just knowing who he is meet the needs of his people? Little did he know that day there was a couple who had come in and they had just found out that their child, their young child, had been molested repeatedly by a close relative. And the father pulled John aside and he said this, and I quote, These have been the hardest months of our lives. Do you know what has gotten me through? The vision of God's holiness you gave me has been the rock we could stand on. So his question was answered that a passionate betrayal of God is all we need as his people. Now, I want to paint a picture for you today. I want to maybe try to help us all catch a glimpse of who God is. And I'll share with you some stories in my own life and things like that. Because, like I said at the beginning, our understanding and idea of who God is will directly affect how intentional we are about sharing the hope of Christ in our world. So let's, let's just take a second and let's just paint this picture of God. Let's just try to recreate this throne room. We see in Isaiah here, this incredible picture, and we're gonna jump around scripture a little bit for a second, but I want you to think of this. I'm a movie buff. I enjoy watching movies. My, my, in fact, my wife, we, were, we went to the um, Marbles Museum yesterday, which was a big mistake because it was kickoff kindergarten day, and there were three million of our closest friends there, and it was, it was just nerve-wracking, and, and my kids were lost four or five times, but we're all good. We're good this morning. So we, we go down and we go onto a bookmobile and I tell my wife, wow, this brings a, a, lot, a lot of memories back. How many of you guys had the bookmobile when you were in elementary school? I, I still have the tortoise and the hare. I stole it from the bookmobile. I told them that yesterday and she went, oh my. It was kind of funny. Her reaction was like, you better give that back. So we're on the bookmobile and I'm like, oh, this brings back a lot of memories. And Ella's, you know, looking at all the books and, and I was talking to Jen about this. She we were talking about checking out books, and Jen says, we go to the library all the time. Let's get out of here. And I said, yeah, it's funny. The kids were telling me the other day, Daddy, you don't go to the library very often. <laughs> and my wife said that Ella told her, Daddy likes watching movies more than reading books. <laughs> so I have, I have a lot of work to do on this. Uh, I do like reading. I do enjoy reading, and it's just that I don't do it as much maybe as I watch movies. But I love movies. So I want you guys to think about this as we paint this picture of God is, we all have these movies where there's a scene in it that we, you know, it's the scenes that make you go, whoa, right? For me, and, and I'll tell a little bit about myself here, I'm kind of a nerd, it was the Lord of the Rings. You guys watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy? So there's this scene where Gandalf and, and the group are in the, the dungeons of 
not Mordor, but the other one, the, the ones the dwarves live in. And I, I'm a pretty, you know, I, I like to think I'm a pretty tough guy. And so sometimes when I watch movies, there'll be a fight scene. I'll be like, oh, I could take that guy. You know, I was a wrestler in high school, so I'm good to go, right? I, I could take him. I'm not afraid of that guy. And in fact, the other day, my, we were watching this movie, and there were these little things in it, and the kids were betting me how many I could take, and I was telling them, I'd take them all out. And the kids were like, you couldn't take one of them. It was funny. But anyway, I'm a pretty tough guy. I like to think of myself that way anyway. And, and there's this scene in the movie where the ball rock jumps out of the fire, and it's this huge, monstrous creature. And it was the first time in a movie I had watched where I thought, I would run like a little girl if that thing jumped out in front of me. It was tremendous. And so here's this idea. I went my, for my kids, this scene was in Jumanji. You guys remember Jumanji? That movie freaked them out. The whole movie was like, whoa, to them. But we all understand the moments where we're like, whoa. And, and so what I want to do is try to paint this picture of, of God for you guys today where we're all just like, whoa, wait a second. That's God. So let's look in Isaiah real quick. We're just going to read the first, first couple of verses here. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, two covered his face. Two covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's an incredible picture. If you can imagine yourself sitting in this throne room. If you turn over to Revelation chapter 5, you don't have to turn there. I just want to read a few things. John has this vision. He says, immediately I saw, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And then verse five, he says, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. This is dramatic. This isn't pretty. This isn't fluffy. This is dramatic. This is intense. God is holy, 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 transcendent above all creation. He is seated on his throne because he rules with authority. This is God. Now, let's continue to look at God. As many of you guys know, my wife and I are getting ready to move to Haiti uh, in a few weeks, actually, September 17th, we fly out for at least a year in Haiti. And to be honest with you, it's been a struggle. I'll share a little bit more about that struggle, just an inner struggle with me. And my wife sent me this scripture the other day. It's Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. And I just want to read it for you. In fact, write it down as you're taking notes. Deuteronomy 31, 8. God had just asked Moses to go move or to, to, to go do his thing. And he says this, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
So this God is holy, 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 seated on the throne. Out of his throne comes flashes of lightning and rolls and peals of thunder. And yet this God is the one who goes before us and says, I am with you to the very end of the age. Do not be afraid. He's the lion and he's the lamb. What an incredible God we serve. What an incredible picture of God. I love what David says in the Psalms. He says, who is man that you are mindful of us? God woos us to himself. This holy, righteous God who sits on the throne also pursues us passionately, not pining away for us, but pursuing us because he loves us. And he tells us, do not be afraid. Our motivation for intentionally reaching the world is God himself. That's it. It should not be anything else other than who God is. That should be the motivation that we get up with every day and say, I am going to go be a light I am going to go be the salt. I am going to be the city on the hill because of who God is. Incredible. Part of our problem, I think, with, with missions today is we tend to make this all about ourselves. We're pretty self-obsessed. As I prepared for Haiti, I've really realized how self-obsessed I am. I, I like air conditioning. I like paved roads. I really enjoy that. I like green stuff. If you've ever been to Haiti, there's not a lot of green. There's not a lot of pavement. There sure isn't a lot of air conditioning. In fact, there's a store. It's called the Echo Depot. The sign looks just like the Home Depot. It's just called the Echo Depot. It's awesome. And there's a paint room, and it has air conditioning. And we go back there, and we ask to look at the paint just to get in the air conditioning. That's how me-centric I am. Haiti has really shown me that I have not arrived. You know my biggest fear in Haiti, and I, I remember talking to my wife. We were sitting around the dinner table, and we were just talking through Haiti. And, and I just looked at her, and I said, I don't know if we'll have this. I don't know if we'll have this sitting around the dinner table and just hanging out with my kids. And that scares me to death, because I love those times. But one thing drives me on, and I'm not saying this because I've got it figured out. I'm, I'm telling you this humbly because God is, this, <laughs> this didn't happen overnight for me. My kids need to see that I'm willing to give up everything for the gospel more than they need me to sit around a dinner table every night. They need to see me willing to give up everything for him. My parents did that for me when they left and went to Venezuela in the middle of nowhere to battle gnats that will carry you away and anacondas and jaguars and all that for the gospel. And that's what my kids need to see and that's the one thing that drives me on because God is enough. Because this vision of God is enough. Francis Chan puts, puts it like this. I love how he says this. The core problem isn't the fact that we are lukewarm, half-hearted, stagnant Christians. It is that we have an inaccurate view of God. 
The problem that the church is facing isn't that we're stagnant. It's that we have an inaccurate view of God. We've lost the driving force behind our mission because it's all about us now. We teach David and Goliath that we're David. We can go out and we can slay the giant. The fact is we're not David. I'm not David. I'm an Israelite. I'm up on the hill. I'm watching people mock God and I'm scared. I don't know what to do. David was a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ slays the giant of sin, not me. We've become so egocentric in our sermons and in our, in our scripture reading that we've forgotten that the motivation and the push and the drive and the power behind the mission of the church is God himself. And we need to remember it. We have to remember this. We have to go back to this. What we think about God means everything. Now, the cool thing about understanding who God is is that when we see a clear picture of God, it always, always, always brings us to a clear picture of who we are. Go back to Isaiah. Look at his reaction as he's seen this vision of God, the temple filling with smoke. And he says this, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah realized who he was compared to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're really good at comparing ourselves to each other, right? Really good. I'm not as bad as Joe down the street. You know, he, he's had three affairs. I'm not as bad as the murderer... And death row, I've never killed anybody. The problem is we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We shouldn't be comparing ourselves to each other. Ever. And Isaiah saw himself in light of a holy God and just like light shines, I don't recommend you do this, take a black light to the next hotel room you are, you're in and shine it on the bed sheets. Don't, don't do that, but you know, you get the picture. That's what God's glory does for us. It illuminates all those dark, hard, sinful places in us that need to be chipped out. And Isaiah saw that, and he said, woe is me, for I am ruined. I, I'm convinced that I wouldn't be standing here today if it weren't for this verse. My wife and I were on our way to the average great life with the picket fence and the dog and the 2.5 kids and the new Honda Odyssey in the driveway, and, and we lost a baby, and it shook us. Her name was Myla, and I still remember the picture of Myla. I have two pictures. One, she's jumping around in her mom's belly, and the other, she's dead. And it shook us to our core. And it was in those moments when everything was stripped away that we realize that God was enough. That his presence was enough. Because it's all we felt like we had. And I remember looking at Jen and I said, Jen, I feel like Isaiah. I feel like I'm being ruined but being built back into something much better. I would never have dreamt of church planning or doing mission work or anything like that if it weren't for the fact that I caught a glimpse of God in a tragedy. He is enough. 
Isaiah saw the face of God. He saw that he was a sinner. But God didn't leave him that way, right? Praise God, he doesn't leave us like that. He doesn't leave us broken and shattered on the floor. No, look at what happens in verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. God does not leave us. This is the beauty, the lion and the lamb. The lion sits on the throne. He rules with authority and might. The lamb is slain for us. Revelation tells us that the only one who was worthy to open the scroll was the lamb who looked as if he was slain. God doesn't leave us in our depravity. Do you see the picture of God we're painting here? Do you see how this should push us to be out of these walls sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world who is without hope? They look to their governments. They look to science. It's all nothing compared to who God is. The only hope we have is in Christ. Isaiah's confession led to Isaiah's cleansing. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, I preached on Psalm 103, and I just want to read the first part again to you because the psalm says to remember. And so we're going to remember a little bit this morning. David is preaching to himself. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all our iniquities who heals all our diseases, who redeems us and redeems our life from the pit, who crowns us with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies our years with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagle. This is salvation. And it comes from the Lord Almighty. I love this, that he pardons our sins. Roman 8, 1 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. I'm reminded of Jesus when he's talking to the adulterous woman. Who is there to condemn you? No one. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. He did not condemn her, but he told her, don't stay the same. He heals our sicknesses. Isaiah tells us that he was bruised for our transgressions, that by his stripes we are healed. He redeems us from death. Ephesians 2 sets out this incredible dichotomy between who we are before Christ and who we are after Christ, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God, the two greatest words in all of Scripture, but God, who was rich in love and mercy through his loving kindness, raised us to life in Christ. He crowns us with grace and mercy, his grace and mercy, and he satisfies us. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and he is all satisfying, more than a cookout milkshake. Even the Reese's peanut butter cup one. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> he satisfies. So now that we have this great picture of God, now that we have this incredible view of who he is, what are we going to do about it? Do we say, oh, that was great. 
thanks. And we walk out of these doors and we keep living our lives the same way. I want to challenge you with this thought. I don't believe that if you have an accurate view of God, you will leave here the same. If your view of God has grown, you will not be the same. You cannot be the same. Look at Isaiah. He's completely changed. Look at verse 7. After he's cleansed, he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And Isaiah does what? Here I am. Send me. Now, you guys have all had these people in your classrooms. If you went to public school or college or anything, the guy who sits down front and every time the teacher has a question that he wants answered, the guy shoots his hand up, right? And he's right in front of the teacher and he's like, ooh, ooh, ooh me, 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 me. How many of you guys were that person? You, <laughs> everybody else did not like you in class. I'm just letting you know. You were disliked, all right? Facebook disliked. They, didn't they take that button away? Anyway. I picture Isaiah being this. He's gone from woe is me, I am ruined, to ooh, 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 I'm cleansed. Pick me, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. I'll tell them. I can't help but tell them. Let me tell them. I've seen you. Isaiah was dramatically changed. Look at the life of Saul. Saul was on his way to go persecute and throw Christians in jail, riding his donkey down the road to go do it with the power of the Pharisees behind him in written form. And what happens? Jesus shows up, knocks him off his donkey. That'll change your life, right? You get knocked off your donkey. Jesus shows up and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It changes Saul completely. Changes his name to Paul. He goes and writes 13 books of the New Testament. The guy who was going to snuff out Christianity is now its greatest missionary. Travels the world sharing Christ, is persecuted, is, is jailed, is shipwrecked, everything for the, gospel, for the cause of Christ. All because he caught a glimpse of who God was. Isaiah shows us when we see God, we cannot help but be changed. Now, this is kind of a big point I want you to catch here. If you look at verse 9 here in, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has just said, here am I, send me. God says, go. He says this one other time. Jesus says it in Matthew 28. And we always start with go. Go, therefore, and make disciples in all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. But we miss one key component that, that he says right before he tells us to go. You see, the disciples were kind of doubting at this point. Scripture says they were a little doubtful about all this. And Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Once again, we're pointed back to who God is. In other words, he's not asking us to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can find the strength in yourself. He's saying, no, you find the strength in me. I have all authority. I am the lion and the lamb. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You get your power from me. You are sent in my power, not your own volition, 
not something you muster up and conjure up. Now, we can do this. We can muster up and go out and do a day and, and, and have a great day. But how long does that last? How long can we really do that? But when we're tapped into the eternal strength of who God is, man, it'll change our lives. It'll change our whole mission because now we have the power through Christ Jesus. I love, Scripture uses the analogy of the vine that's, that's grafted in. That's a painful process. You, you have to cut it and stick it in. And, but as it grafts, the life force of the vine is what feeds the branch. And as we're grafted into Christ, his life force, his strength is what feeds us. We have an infinite supply because he's the lion and the lamb. Incredible. Now, this changes things for us. And I want, I want you to catch this. We always like to hide our, behind a calling. I'm, I'm called to be a missionary. The problem is we're commanded, not called. If you're a follower of Christ, you are commanded to be the light. You are commanded to share the gospel with a lost world. You are commanded to be the city on the hill. So now it becomes an issue of obedience, right? Because we're commanded, now we have to choose. Do we want to obey or do we want to disobey? My kids uh, are young, and so obedience is a pretty important aspect of our lives right now because if you have four kids who do not obey, it is chaotic. And there are parents who lose sanctification a lot, right? <laughs> so we teach our kids to obey, and we have this little saying. Now, my mom had sayings when I grew up, and I still remember them because I hate them, all right? One of my favorite, you'll like this one, lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. Isn't that just loving and motherly? I hate that saying. I want my kids to hate this. You obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. I want them to hear it so much that they hate it, that, they, that my sons may be preaching one day and say, my dad used to say this all the time and I hated it. But it's in my heart. Now, my mom had a lot more of those sayings that I hate that were actually more applicable, but that's, the, that's just the funniest one. So, I teach my kids to obey because I know it's important. I love my kids too much to let them disobey. Samuel kind of faced this problem, and I have to hurry, I'm out of time, but Samuel comes to get ready to go to battle, and the Philistines are out there, and they have to sacrifice before they go to battle. They've been commanded to, but Samuel, the prophet, is, is nowhere to be found. Saul is the king, and Samuel is the prophet, and so Saul gets ahead of himself. Saul sacrifices on behalf of Samuel. And Samuel gets there and he says this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. It's powerful. That's a powerful statement. Here, Saul had done the, the religious thing, but he had done it in disobedience. And I think sometimes our problem is the same as Saul's, that we hide behind our religion. We hide behind the phrase, I'll pray about it. How many of you guys have used that? Don't lie. Raise your hand. Yeah, I see heads nodding. We've all used it. I'll pray about it. I'll, I'll get around to it. Brian Iser said this. You guys know Brian, right? 
It's kind of popular around these parts. Faith is risk. It's acting on the character of the one who is trustworthy. Don't pray about stupid things. If you have the ability and the means, just do it. Don't hide our disobedience behind outward spirituality. Don't do it because the Lord delights in obedience more than he does outward spirituality. We need to be careful about this because I believe it is a clear window into what we think about God. I know that sounds judgmental, but as the body of Christ, we're supposed to hold each other accountable. We're supposed to push each other. And I believe that our mission would dramatically change if we would realize the picture of God, who he is, that he's the driving force and that we're commanded to go and that it's an act of obedience, not calling. So what does obedience look like? Well, clearly everybody should pack up and move to Haiti, right? I mean, yeah. No, that's not right at all. I'm joking, that was a joke. That, I didn't use that in the first service and I'm glad I didn't because it flopped here too. So. No, obedience looks different for all of us. Some of us are called to help support missionaries on the field. Some of us have every means to go on the field. I can't tell you how many people my parents tell me they talked to that said, yeah, we wanted to go on the mission field at some point. And they kept putting it off and putting it off and now they're sick. Now their health's bad and they can't go. Don't wait to obey God. That was never a good time. My wife and I talked about adopting and we realized that if we were gonna wait on finances to come in, we would never adopt. Well, we have an Ethiopian, all right? We didn't wait. We obeyed God, and guess what? I can't tell you where that money came from, but I know we're not in debt. It's incredible what happens when you obey God. Obedience starts small, and so here's what I want you to do. Serve this week. This church has put a great opportunity for you to start obeying the voice of God, obeying the command of God, and saying, I'm going to go be a light. Serve this week. Put away some time and come join us. Ask God for daily opportunities to share the gospel. I'll close with two, two more stories. I was at a mechanic shop getting my car inspected, and there was a Hindu man beside me. And the reason I know he was Hindu is because I started a conversation with him, and we got into the gospel. He couldn't go anywhere. They had his car, right? He was stuck. So, but it was a great, a great opportunity. And I just started asking questions about Hinduism. And, you know, I don't like being confrontational with guys like that. They, you know, they're new to America. And I don't want to just, Jesus is it. You're going to hell, you know, all that stuff. No, I started asking him about, about Hinduism. And then I started contrasting scripture with Hinduism and talking about sin and I mean, this wasn't, you know, a lot of times we chalk witnessing up to, yeah, I just said, hey, Jesus loves you. I witnessed to him, yeah. Well, that's not really it. But we, I mean, we got to talk about a lot of this stuff. He was a captive audience. And I'll tell you what, I promise you this. If you would do this, it is the greatest feeling in the world. The greatest feeling in the world to share the gospel with somebody. Obedience is messy. Philippians 2 
shows us this, that Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Jewish culture, cursed was he who was, who, who was killed on a tree. Christ was obedient to the point of death. If the one we follow was obedient to death, how do we expect anything less of ourselves? Church, I want to challenge you. If our view of God is accurate, then our mission of God will be unstoppable. And so I want to challenge you. Start small. Obey the command to go. You give me a hundred people who fear nothing and who hate sin, and I'll give you a changed world. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word that it is sharper than a two-edged sword that it pierces to our marrow. God, may the vision that we caught of you today be contagious. (laughs) May it ignite us with passion that we would go out and share your love and your hope, the fact that you're the lion and the lamb with the lost and dying world, Lord. May you be glorified in our lives. May you be glorified in this church. We love you. Amen.